Welcome to TechTastic, the podcast that explores the cutting-edge world of technology and its impact on society. New breakthroughs and developments are revolutionizing the world around us, presenting exciting opportunities as well as complex challenges. We'll explore the big ideas and key players driving these transformations as we seek to understand the implications of these advancements for our lives, our communities, and our planet. Join us on this journey of discovery and exploration as we navigate the fascinating and ever-evolving world of technology. This is TechTastic. Victoria, I'd love to welcome you to It's TechTastic. It's lovely to have you here. Thank you. The topic of the future of the workplace is being disrupted in so many ways. You know, there's a lot of companies now that are trying to do the return to the office, but they've been hybrid or fully remote for some time. So you've got the impact of what COVID did there. You've got the changing in dynamics between the generations and expectations that come along with that. And you've got uh, AI and other massively disruptive technology happening in rapid fire. So when we talk about the future of the workforce, there are many different ways we can go with that. And I'm just curious from like a high level view, what do you think the biggest changes are going to be and how is that going to impact all of us? I hope you said changes plural and not change because I don't think that there's like a silver bullet for employers, quite frankly, here. I think it's going to be multi-pronged. And I think the one thing that you brought up, Christian, around the where we work, I think forever will be changed. So I think a hybrid environment is likely to be the case going forward in large part because employees want that flexibility. I personally believe that there's still a ton of greatness and innovation that comes in being physically together at some point, but I personally wouldn't want to return five days a week into the office. So I think where we work will again forever be changed. There's a big shift around why we work now. So I think because in the pandemic, there was zero separation between home and workplace as we did our work in our homes and the thought process we had over what we wanted for ourselves and our lives and health was at question the ability to look at the work that we do and what kind of impact is it having, not just for the organization itself, but for its customers, for the community and for the world at large is the next. But connected to the why, I think, is the work that we do that brings us joy or brings us passion and the skills we have. Or if you're familiar with the Ikigai philosophy over like what you're good at, skills you have versus what you can get paid for and how do you blend and find all of those things. And then the last piece is around leadership. There's an empathetic human centered kind of leader we all want to work for now. This hustle hard authoritarian approach just won't work anymore. Well, that's very interesting. We're speaking to a lot of entrepreneurs and people that are largely self-starters and they do have to hustle hard. Like you can't go start something new and just kind of coast, which is not what you're implying at all. I know, but they might come across that way. How do they have to change their own thinking about employee one through, you know, that first build out of the team? Because they are going to be thinking about like, personally, I have a startup right now. I work, I don't know, a hundred hours a week. I mean, something stupid. I'm just always working. Uh, It's not what I want to be doing necessarily, right? I would love to be spending time with friends and family, but I know I need to right now. And as I build out my own team, I'm running into this where I'm like, ah, it was a three day weekend. Why weren't they working? And I have to remind myself that that's not even a fair ask. Yeah, you're right. And that is the big, you know, difference for the entrepreneurs versus the employees. I mean, they own it. They have a personal stake in it. They're personally invested in their time, their money, et cetera. And so for the wanting to see, and I'm a hustle hard, like you work tons and tons of hours. I sit on boards, I have side hustles, like all of those things. But when it comes to employees, it goes back to a couple of the things that I just said. 
finding a way to take the work that they do and connect it to impact so they personally feel driven to want to do more, to potentially hustle is maybe not as hard, but harder than, you know, that 40 hour work week that they're paid for. So that's one part of it. And there's also lots of compensation schemes and things you can do and, you know, equity even, even, you know, and things like that to make it more tangible for those who want to work and then be a good employer. You know, you say there's no loyalty in business, but there's loyalty to people. And so can we find the right kind of leader who we want to go that extra mile for? I think that was the most important point for me. I learned, I don't know when that happened, but at some point I learned that it is always just about the people. Without the people, you got nothing. And if you show them care and compassion and you actually do care about their future, it's not just window dressing, you're not just saying it, you mean it. And you demonstrate that repeatedly, you end up with people that are loyal to you and then they'll become as engaged in it as you are, hopefully. But the hard part for me right now, not me personally, I'm thinking of like in the industry, a lot of the things that are being disruptive don't feel like they're necessarily making the world a better place. Like the joke that was constantly in the TV show, Silicon Valley, like making the world a better place through seamless packet transport over networks. I mean, these ridiculous <laughs> mission statements, right? And you see those, but everybody knows those are nonsense. And so how do you connect when you have something that is really far disconnected from the reality to, uh, of the impact it has on people, how do you make that true? How do you make it so that it is the individual feels like they are having an impact on the world? They are uh, making the world a better place. Yeah, it can be tough. I mean, if you're producing certain widgets or as you said, you know, packs or your whatever, like um, it can be difficult. I actually think a lot of that is incumbent upon the leader to try and find a way to bridge that impact discussion and thinking that's connected to what's meaningful also to the employee. Like I want to work, I worked in a variety, my entire career has been B2B professional services uh, and selling a bunch of different services. At the end of the day, I could work in any industry as long as I fundamentally believe in the product or service, uh, one. And then two, like, do I think my company's doing good? And so I think there's a way to bring that back down. Maybe you're processing, well, invoices. Okay, that's important because that's how the, you know, the company gets paid. But like, you just need to figure out what is that thing that's critically important to the business and therefore all of the other employees you're working with, or maybe it's just one cog in this big thing that's going to be delivered and that's pretty meaningful for whatever. So I just think we need to try and break it down into bite-sized chunks, but also connect it in a way that's personal to the individual. You have to believe it yourself. You have to believe in the mission yourself and understand why would you as a leader be involved in something that you didn't think was transformative, helpful and empowering in some way. So you've got to believe it yourself. And then it should be easy to translate that to everybody else that's impacting it. Here's how what you're doing, you're working on that packet transport piece. But without that, this person doesn't get the message and you know they might not find out about their grandmother's birthday or you know, like you try to make it truly personable with real world examples. Like, hey, remember that time when this occurred? And so you try to connect it, but it's only because you believed it. And if you don't believe it, you probably shouldn't be there as a leader to start with. I agree completely. I'm Generation X and that I think that I was raised to be very, very cynical. We were the first television generation that was largely raised by it. And so we were flooded with commercials for every part of our lives. And so anytime anybody tells me like, oh, this is why we're doing it. My instinct is to say, you're so full up bleep, right? 
I know that you're just in it for the money. It's not just me. I've talked to a lot of other people from my generation that are in leadership roles, and we all have that extremely cynical view. And so we might believe it to a degree. We've sold ourselves on it, but we don't really internalize it. And so being authentic with it when you're trying to get somebody else there with you is sometimes very hard because you've always got that cynical little character on your shoulder saying, yeah, but really, I'm a Gen Xer as well, and I trust but verify. Oh, there you go. <laughs> it's the way I choose to approach <laughs> things. I work predominantly, at least the last decade for sure, if not longer, for Fortune 100 companies. Publicly traded, quarter to quarter results, so it is about making money. We look at sales and revenue and gross profit. And so I'm driven to the complexities of achieving our shareholders' objectives, but that isn't the thing that motivates me. So I have chosen to look at things differently. I want to be a different kind of leader that people want to work for and that there doesn't then be a trade-off for financial and business results for being a, a different kind of human and leader and how I want to engage. That's part of how I bridge the like cynicism and or going back to hustle hard, money-driven way of the world, quite frankly. That's great advice for people. I find the experience actually, as you were talking about the Fortune 100, I find it harder in the larger corporations because you become so much further away from the value that they actually create for somebody, whether it's I've been at like Nike and, you know, people were buying the shoes because it made them feel like an athlete or, you know, whatever feeling they were getting from the brand or at, you know, very large companies that were just shipping furniture. But the, the story was easy to say because I could connect back to it and say like, Hey man, like every time you go buy a new pair of sneaks, you know, like, why are you doing it? Well, I'm excited because it makes me feel like an athlete or whatever it was, or if it's furniture, I'm making my home a place that feels safe, especially in the time of COVID when it was like my nest, it was my safety place, right? Like you could sell that story, but as the organization got bigger and bigger, you were so much further removed from it. And for me, it was always about keeping, who are we doing this for front and center? Then number two was your team. We're here for each other too, right? We're all here trying to do this thing. You, Christian, are making Victoria's day better or uh, because you're helping her do these things or you're helping her be successful. And I found a lot of empowerment for the individuals by like really making it about them too. And that's the only safety I've ever found in the large organizations when it gets so disconnected from the, the customer or the, you know, the consumer. Yeah, and it, sometimes that means bringing it down to controlling what you can control. So it's your point in terms of messaging and making it personal. But then at some point, there are some things you need to learn to let go of in these big organizations. I've built and bought businesses as well. So I have this weird between like the large companies and like small and, you know, doing a lot of consulting or coaching for founders. And it's funny, my husband, from the moment he met me, he's like, you're never going to be happy until you're CEO of your own company. Now, I did buy a company, but it was really, really small. So it wasn't as complex and didn't motivate me as much. But that is the intended goal is to, you know, get back to that because I want to be able to control a lot more, particularly going back to like culture and leadership and those kinds of things as much as the outcome of the business results. So uh, you would call the turnaround queen, right? Like that's a nickname that's been applied to you? Yes. And I find as you were talking about the back and forth between the startup founder and the large corporation, like the, the benefit of being in those turnaround situations is you see what can go wrong and you can apply like, okay, here's what it looks like. Here's how I'm going to spin this around. Oftentimes founders put themselves in a situation they don't realize where that eventually leads. Sometimes it's out of expediency. Sometimes it's just their own personality and they think that they're always going to be there doing those things. And I'll, I'll give you an example. A lot of founders get into the trap of being the oracle. Like if they're not there to answer something, 
the organization can't move forward. And when you're a small team of eight people, no problem, that works. I mean, it sucks, but it works. When you're a team of 8,000 people, it can't possibly work. And so I'm curious, like I just gave you one, the Oracle problem. What are some of the other things that you see that become emergent over the scaling of an organization that break down? Well, I think in part because many entrepreneurs, when they're starting, they're limited by cash and cash flow. And so they tend to do a lot themselves, but we're not good at all things. And so learning to recognize that and to delegate, outsource, barter, even if you have to, if again, there's not a lot of capital there to do it to the people who have the experience and can draw upon a history to be able to go, I've seen this in the past. It didn't work out well. And so I think that's one way. And the other is find your personal board of directors, if you will, that you can work with to consult who again, have that experience. So for entrepreneurs, something like EO, entrepreneurs organization, where you all come together and you can start to share much more openly, whether it's in similar industries, everyone's the entrepreneur. So I was gonna say function, but that wouldn't be the case, Uh, but come together and ask for help. Like I was an early executive. And so I think I was fearful to say, I don't know what I don't know, because I didn't want to show that vulnerability. But I can tell you now, Christian, like hand up regularly go, I don't know what I don't know, and I'm going to ask for help. But it took a lot of years of gaining confidence in myself and the stuff I did know to go, I'm, you know, a flawed human who doesn't know it all that I'm going to have to go get help. And that's such an empowering thing for your team to hear too, because you otherwise you could create a situation in which you become that oracle of your team problem yourself, where you're like, everybody come to me, look for the answers. It's the teach a person to fish versus uh, fishing for them. If you're always giving them the answers, they never learn how to find them on their own. So I love that advice. For me, I, I've always talked about teams, you know, individuals having scale ability themselves. And there's a transition from being an individual contributor to being a team lead where you've got a small team that you're responsible for. But when you become a manager, director, VP, SVP, you know, senior executive, every time you're doing that, there's a whole new set of skills you have to learn because your communication methodology, your, you know, relying on personal relationships, like in the way that those have to be managed, all of it changes. And the technology space, we don't do much with that. We don't train people on being good leaders and being, well, hell, being good humans, which is really the same thing. I'm always looking for more advice to give them. One of the things that you said in there really was one of those transformative moments was like, stop being the expert, open yourself up and be vulnerable and say, I don't know. And that's the moment when you actually start the process of becoming a good leader. So many things you said there, Christian, that makes me just think back on sort of career and where even I choose to focus my time. So there's the big focus on skills. And so I you know, work for Accenture and then IBM just before that. And so there's a discrete focus on skills, skills needed now for our clients to deliver and skills for future that we see coming down the pipe. We talk about AI and generative AI being that's at the top of the list right now, you know, but finding SAP resources is still a hot resource that we're looking at. So one, I think as leaders, it's important for us to think and connect our business strategy back down to discrete skills that are going to be required for the workforce. So we're not finding these huge holes and then looking to borrow talent at crazy rates. So that's one piece. The next one I talk about skills is yes, those human centered skills. We're not taught that. I think a lot of companies make the mistake of just promoting their top performer to leadership. They don't necessarily innately have those skills. Doesn't mean they can't be successful, but what are we doing to give them those skills and educate? And so that's a big gap in many. 
Yeah, and I would argue that's the last person you should promote because you want the expert doing the thing that they're expert at. You want to find somebody that has expertise in like maybe in the team, they're the one that was the cheerleader during planning processes. They were the one getting everybody excited about the next moment, right? Um, they are showing the skills and the, the abilities to be a good leader, not just a good technologist or a good function, right? Yeah, exactly. And so I wish that there was much more of a focus on that. Most companies do, um, once they reach a certain size and scale, will do employee engagement surveys. But then there's few flaws with that. One, most employees never think it's truly anonymous. <laughs> so they generally give really honest feedback unless they're totally pissed and they're like basically out the door already. And two, we're just not actually asking the right questions. And whether that's because we're, well, I see it for a whole host of reasons. We're trying to keep the survey short so people complete it. We get as many responses as possible. We don't know that there's a problem and therefore what questions we should be asking. And last, we don't actually want to know the responses. We're afraid of what we're gonna hear and or the fact that we're gonna need to take action against that and do some education, maybe some performance management, maybe moving some people out of the organization. Victoria, it was lovely having you on the show. If somebody wanted to learn more, they wanted to connect with you, um, they wanted to start developing as a leader, uh, where would you send them? Well, you can connect with me on victoria-peltier.com. That's my landing page for all things thought leadership, booking me as a speaker, et cetera. And then if you want to connect with me through whatever your chosen social media platform of choice is from there, other than like TikTok and Snapchat, my younger one tells me I'm I'm old, therefore is my Gen X coming out, um, that I'm not on those. But all the other ones, LinkedIn, Insta, Facebook, they can find me there and connect with me from there. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being on the show. It was lovely chatting with you. And that's a wrap for this episode of TechTastic. I want to thank you personally for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Until then, keep exploring and stay curious.